Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. Bacteria made the first sounds on Earth. Dinosaurs likely belched and bugled instead of roared. And for millennia, the Earth was largely silent. Why it took so long for communicative sound to emerge, and how it flourished into the coos, croaks, cries, and cacophonies of today, is the subject of David George Haskell's new book, Sounds Wild and Broken. While documenting the sonic marvels of the world, Haskell arrived at the alarming conclusion that we're in an acoustic crisis. Man-made sounds and behavior are causing insects and songbirds to die out, disrupting whale song and silencing shrimp, creating stress in our own minority communities, and generating countless other oral ills. David George Haskell, a professor of biology and environmental studies at Sewanee, the University of the South, and a Guggenheim Fellow, joins us on the podcast to talk about why sound matters. Thanks for chatting with me, David. Hi, Stephanie. It's great to be with you. Your book is extremely surprising, and I think the most surprising thing to me was, as you write, that for more than nine-tenths of its history, Earth lacked any communicative sounds. No creatures sang when the seas first swarmed with animal life or when the ocean's reefs first rose. The land's primeval forests contained no calling insects or vertebrate animals. How is it possible for things to be silent for so long? Yeah, and particularly for we humans, of course, we're very... Uh acoustic creatures and we're modeling that right now speaking here on on a podcast and and connecting one to another through little trembling sound waves in air it's it's a real marvel and it's it's enriches our lives in in many ways and the same is true for many other creatures on the planet and it was shocking to me when i did the calculation that these communicative sounds are very recent appearance in in life of course Early in life, in the, the history of the planet, there was sound. There were volcanoes. There was rain. Uh, when the first animals evolved, you could hear their little scrabbling feet, probably, mouths crunching on things. But the, as far as we know, there were no sounds whose intent, from the point of view of natural selection and evolution, was for one creature to send a signal to another in the way that a bird does when it's singing or a cricket when it's chirping. That came hundreds of millions of years after the evolution of complicated animals. They had eyes, they had sophisticated ways of communicating visually and through chemicals, but sound came very late, and quite possibly because sound was dangerous. The first sound makers tended to be creatures with wings or powerful jumping hind legs, and so it's quite likely that predation and the, the risk of being eaten was the thing that put a cap on sonic evolution for many, many years. All of the first animals to evolve in the oceans and on land had good hearing. And so predators could hone in on, on, on uh, their prey through sound. That creates quite a, a barrier. Once the barrier was breached, though, by crickets and frogs and then later mammals and, and birds, extraordinary diversification of sound. But it came very, very late. I guess I would have thought that the ability to make sounds for communication would have evolved at the same time as the hearing mechanisms to hear them, but they're very different and very complicated. So can you describe how we even hear things? Like, how am I hearing you today? Well, mostly we hear, of course, through our ears, although I should note also that we're sensitive to sound waves on other parts of our body, our fingertips, our skin, 
low frequency sounds go into our chest and so so it's not just a story about the ears although the ears of course have the most refined way of hearing when sound waves come to us through the air they go down through the little ear holes and then and then transmitted through membranes and a series of tiny little bones the middle ear bones which are interestingly descended from jaw bones uh, so we're hearing with miniaturized little jaw bones in our inner ears and then the waves get transmitted into an aquatic and a watery little tube so the, the waves are sent into a, a tube that is curled within our inner ear called the cochlea which means the little snail so we have a, a coil filled with fluid and on the inside of that coil are lots and lots of little hairs and those hairs are what pick up the movements of the fluid so sound waves start off in air they get translated to movement in water so essentially little drops of seawater in our ears we're still aquatic creatures when we hear and then that gets translated to wiggly little hairs and then those hairs actually amplify the sound a little bit they're actively involved in in uh, augmenting the the sound wave and helping us to hear it and then that gets sent to an electrical signal to the brain where it goes through lots of layers of processing but those little hairs are the same thing that lobsters and single-celled creatures and fish and all the other creatures of, of life they're the same structures at, at root that all these other beings use to detect motion and sound around them. For some creatures, the motion they're detecting is mostly just the waving of water at very low frequencies. For others, like, like us and many other creatures with really good sense of hearing, those hairs are tuned to much higher frequencies as well. But the, the sense of hearing is something that unites us with many, many other creatures. I, I think of it as a sort of a kinship with pond scum. Because when you look at a little drop of pond water under the microscope, you see all these tiny little single-celled creatures swimming around, and they're swimming around by beating their hairs. Those are exactly the same hairs that we use in our inner ears to convert mechanical sound waves into electrical signals in, in nerve cells. I love trying to imagine what it would be like to be a bacterium and to hear <laughs> I wish I could play that sample. I cannot. And I also can't play a sample of how an insect hears because like, we're not bugs and we have very different structures. But I can play a clip of how an insect makes sound. Mm -hmm. And you have actually speculated on what the very first insects might have sounded like. And you made a recording of it. So here it is. That sounds almost like a very avant-garde uh, electronica track, but I know that's not what we're listening to. So what is that? Well, this is a speculative reconstruction of the sound of a, of a creature that's called Permostridulus. This is a, a, an insect that we know only from the fossil record. It lived about 270 million years ago. And on its wings are tiny little raised ridges with lots of nubs on them. And these look similar to the ridges and the nubs that modern crickets and katydids use to make their chirping sounds. And so as far as we know, this is the, the Earth's first singer. There were probably others before that, but we haven't yet discovered the, the fossils of them. And, and we haven't spent a lot of time combing through the fossil record looking for sound-making devices. But as we speak now, this is the first known physical evidence of a, of a singing creature in 
on planet Earth, and indeed in the known universe if we want to get really uh, cosmic about things. Uh, so I took measurements from photographs of the wing, the fossilized wing, and then compared them to the size and the spacing, the dimensions of the sound-making devices on modern crickets, and then reconstructed the sound based on the fact that we know that larger and more widely spaced nubs produce lower frequency sounds. And so compared to modern crickets, this is pretty low, deep, raspy sound. The raspiness is partly because the, the nubs on the ridge are pretty unevenly spaced in the fossil specimen compared to modern crickets who have extraordinarily precise spacing of the ridges on their wings that give these pure toned sounds. And so evolution has really created an extraordinary a sound making device on, on modern insects. These first ones, it, it was more of a crude construction, if you like, and so it sounds a little more raspy. Like a rough draft. Right, <laughs> literally. For comparison, here's the most recent revision, contemporary cricket song. I'm hearing a lot more than just that rasping. I hear that, but then I also hear song. What's going on there? So this is a chorus of crickets from a meadow in late summer in Tennessee. So what we're hearing is actually multiple species singing at the same time. Every species of cricket has its own wing design and its own way of rubbing the wings together. So they have songs that are distinctive to, to each species. Um, the other thing you're hearing in that recording is that the, the first segments of the recording are at normal speed and then further into the recording I've slowed things down so that we can hear more of the details more of those raspy sounds and hear some species that were inaudible to us in the first cut why is that it's because they're singing way above the, the frequency range that human ears can detect anyone above the age of 20 has already experienced hearing loss in the higher frequency range and the older you get the more high frequencies you lose. It's part of a Faustian bargain about mortality that our evolutionary ancestors made years and years ago, hundreds of millions of years ago. So uh, older people hear fewer higher frequencies and so I've slowed things down partly so we can hear the rich textures within these very rapid songs regardless of, of how good our hearing is and partly also to bring creatures out of the so-called ultrasonic into the sonic range. It's only ultrasonic to the human ear. For crickets, this is the normal range. Um, you know, our words tend to reflect our own sensory biases, of course. Is the bit you said at the beginning about different species sort of a clue as to why communicative sounds evolved? You know, so Mr. Cricket can tell the difference between Ms. Cricket and Miss Caddy did? Yes, that's part of it. Part of what's happening is, is species recognition. It's, you know, it's a waste of time. And in fact, it's very dangerous to try and mate with creatures of the wrong species. And in fact, there are some insects in, in Australia that make deceptive sounds. They make the mating call of other species and draw in amorous suitors and then eat them when they show up. Um, so... Uh, but for most insects, that they just sing their own species song. 
And the song does indeed save a lot of time. It saves danger and it helps um, individuals of the right species find one another. But then beyond that, it helps individuals within each species judge with whom am I going to unite my, my genes? So uh, mate choice is often mediated by sound, the quality of the sound. Could be its acoustic quality, how clear is it? How fast are the trills? How, how deep voiced or loud is it? Different species value different things. And so in the qualities of the song, there's also a lot of information about the health and the vigor and the, the genetic quality of singers. And then evolution, not satisfied with just signaling quality, decides to get drunk on its own aesthetic qualities and say, well, once a mating preference gets set up for a particular quality, say having a fast trill, that becomes something to strive for in and of itself. And the trill gets more and more exaggerated just because it's sexy, just because rapid trilling crickets or rapid trilling birds leave more offspring. That's that's natural selection. It, it, it promotes the spread of that particular genetic variant. And so the radical differences that we hear between species, say between two closely related bird species that have radically different songs, is partly fueled by aesthetic processes within evolution that cause species to diverge radically from one another in ways that far surpass what you'd need to just communicate, well, I'm a healthy bird or I'm a healthy cricket. No, this is telling us something about uh, the, the divergent qualities of evolution. And this, this is what really excites me because these are the creative powers of the earth spilling out through song. Yeah. I mean, you said this was part of the story, sexual selection, finding a mate. What's the rest of the story? I mean, what are the other motives for communicative sound? I mean, obviously we are communicating, so that's that's one <laughs> benefit. But are there others that we're just not thinking of? Yeah. So, I mean, one very simple way is if, if a predator comes and grabs you and you make a surprising sound, that predator will release you and you have a chance to get away. So for a lot of little insects, that is, in fact, one of the primary reasons they have sound-making devices. You try and pick up a little grasshopper or a um, pill bug, roly-poly, often they make a little vibratory sound that is sort of weird, and, and, and experiments have shown that spiders and mice and other predators let go of prey when, when they're blasted with sound. Mate choice is a big part of why creatures sing to one another, but also social interactions that are not about mating, keeping a flock together, parents and offspring communicating one to another, information about group membership in, in creatures that have highly developed cultures and social networks like whales and dolphins and some birds. Sound is the primary carrier of identity. You can, when a whale hears another whale make, its, make a sound, it knows who the great-grandmother of that whale was, what group they belong to, what kind of food they're eating. They're carrying all this sophisticated information in the same way that when you hear uh, the voice of a friend, just pick up the phone. They don't even need to identify themselves. You just pick up the acoustic qualities of their voice. Other creatures are doing the same thing. We've only heard insects so far, but sort of birds were the next step and then reptiles. And I feel like this is a really great opportunity to shatter my generation's childhood and explain how Jurassic Park is mostly fake sounds for dinosaurs. And we know that because of the bird record and the fossil record. Um, so can you please explain 
why we're all wrong about the T-Rex. Yes. Well, you know, Jurassic Park is actually a magnificent example of amazing sound design. So the people who created the soundtrack wanted to have sounds that would carry the narrative forward and deliver particular emotions and feelings to viewers of the movie. And they did an amazing job by layering the sounds of multiple existing species from penguins to snoring dogs to all kinds of other sounds they combined to make these sounds of, of dinosaurs. These are not very, very likely not the sounds that the dinosaurs made themselves. Uh, of course, for a lot of dinosaurs, we have no clue how they sounded, but we can, based on the structure of, of the larynx and the air pipes, sometimes looped air pipes within their, the crests on their heads, make some reconstructions of their yelps or their booming sounds. The birds, to me, the birds are the really interesting part of, of they evolved in the Jurassic and were very diverse after the Jurassic through the, through the Cretaceous. But the first bird diversity on this planet were not singing as modern birds do. They probably made sort of gecko-like little chirps and, and yelps, not sophisticated bird song the way, the way we know it. Birds, modern birds sing with a structure buried deep in their chest. It's unique to modern birds. No other creature has it called the syrinx very sophisticated little sound making device made of membranes and tiny little muscles dozens of muscles each one is the size of a rice grain extraordinary fine sculpture of, of vertebrate anatomy the earliest known syrinx is only from about 68 million years ago which is tens of millions of years after birds evolved and started diversifying there's one small group of birds that evolved this and luckily for our ears and those who enjoy birdsong, those were some of the few birds that made it through the mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous, when a big meteorite wiped out much of the earth on this planet, especially life that lived in forests, as many birds did. Among the few survivors were birds that had this syrinx. They then went on and diversified and filled the earth's habitats with singing birds. So when we hear birdsong, we're hearing the legacy of renewal after great loss. So there's extra reason to feel uplifted by birdsong because of the, the story of how they came to be in deep time. No kidding. I didn't quite realize how lucky we got then that proto-songbirds are the ones that happened to survive. So we got to play some birdsong. What recording have you picked out for us? These are adult sparrows recorded from different places so some from Colorado some from California so these are all the same species of sparrow but this is we'll hear one little clip from different individuals and each individual bird has its own uh, its own voice its own way of riffing on the species song Wow, you can really hear it when it's isolated like that. Yeah, each each bird has an individual song that it learns early in life. And then in this particular species, so these are white crowned sparrows, sticks with that song for the rest of its life. Now, there are other species like mockingbirds and some others that, that pick up songs throughout the rest of their life. In this particular one, they have an earlier period of, of learning and then they really stick with what they know best. And because they're learning their song, there's an opportunity for a lot of geographic variation and for dialects to appear. So 
these dialects vary over large scale. So Colorado sounds different from California and the birds in Alaska sound different from the ones in, in Wyoming. But also at a micro scale, uh, in, in parts of coastal California in particular, you can walk just a, a mile and hear a whole different a whole different dialect. So the way in which these birds learn their songs creates diversity within the species. It's the birds that are the stay-at-home kind of birds that don't migrate much and don't move that have the most fine geographic structure, as you'd expect. And that's true in human societies too, right? Places where people don't move much, every valley or hillside or county can have a slightly different accent. In places where people are moving around in a, in a very globalized way, accents tend to become more homogenized. The same is true within the within these sparrows. The, the migratory ones tend to be a little more similar to one another. So there is geographic variation that, that breaks the species down into these different dialects that isn't mediated mostly by genes. It's about culture. It's about what the spa young sparrows learned by listening to the, to the ones around them when they were growing up. But there's also the expression of individuality because no two individuals sound exactly the same. And again, that's something that, of course, sparrow brains are structured in a different way than ours, but the process is similar to the way in which people also carve out individual acoustic space that is used to identify ourselves. Imagine if we all sounded the same, it would be massively confusing. Same for these sparrows. And in fact, if you do a really mean experiment, and that is to record, make a tape recording of, of a sparrow from one side of a, say, a male sparrow territory, and play that neighbor from the other side where the neighbor normally isn't, the male on the territory freaks out uh, because it's like, what, you know, that neighbor shouldn't be on the east side, it should be on the west, and maybe it's trying to take over my entire territory. So the birds use individually identifiable sounds to mediate their social relationships. And so memory and um, distinctiveness of sound are really, really important to the function of sparrow society. I really want to lean into this connection between birdsong and human communication because to me, listening to those sounds and really paying attention to the differences, it doesn't sound unlike a Paleolithic flute sample that you shared. Here is my evidence. So this is a sound played uh, by Anna Friedrika Potengowski, who's a flute player in Germany who specializes in, in working with Paleolithic reconstructions. And the flute was made from the tusk of an extinct species, the, the mammoth, by Wolf Hein, who is a Paleolithic reconstruction expert. He works with stone tools and, and recreates for museums all around the world some of the creations of Paleolithic peoples. And this particular reconstruction is based on the flute. In fact, the earliest known musical instrument anywhere in, in the world is about 40,000 years old, is a mammoth ivory flute. He's built, he, he built a reconstruction of this because, of course, the, the flute itself is in the old flute is in the museum. You can't play it. It, it was reconstructed from, from dozens of little pieces. But as an experiment, it's like, well, let's make this mammoth ivory flute and see what it sounds like. 
Turns out it's very, very hard to play. The embouchure, so the way that you form your lips and tongue to the top of the flute, and the way you, you pass your breath over the flute, it's really hard to make a sound. Uh, Anna Friedrika Potengalski is, is amazing at doing this, and she's evoked extraordinary sounds from this. We don't know how Paleolithic people thought of music or how they played these instruments, but by reconstructing the flute and trying to play it, we can understand some of the limitations, the constraints, and then also the possibilities of what kind of sounds might have emerged from these very, very first known musical instruments. That, I mean, the people who made these were some of the first modern humans to come to Northern Europe. They were living in the depths of the Ice Age, between basically in valleys between huge areas of ice and glaciers and the, and the Northern Alps, extraordinarily difficult lives. And yet, what did they choose to do with their technology, which at the time was stone technology? They made art. They made uh, music. Uh, they also made the first known three-dimensional figurative art. So in the same layers as, as the caves that the flutes were found, we also find um, figurines, uh, the most famous of, of which is a female figurine now in Blaubeuren Museum in, in southern Germany. Um, but there are also exquisite carvings of birds in flight and of all the different animals that the, the, the people would have lived among. So th these were people who had very rich artistic lives, despite the difficulty uh, that they faced of trying to stay alive in this, in this very cold and hostile environment. And I think there's sort of a lesson for us there is that thinking of art as an, a, sort of an extra add-on for aesthetes when you're well-fed enough and you've got enough money and all the rest. No, art is fundamental to being a human. And it's not just these caves in southern Germany that tell us this. This, this is true from, from artifacts in Africa and Asia or all around the world. This story about the fundamental importance of art for humanity is told again and again. And in this case, it's told with these extraordinary ancient musical instruments. Yeah, I mean, just for me sitting here in 2022, you know, my creativity is already flowing, trying to think of what kind of songs did they play? Was it about being jealous yeah. of birds and trying to imitate them? <laughs> I mean, do we? what do we know concretely about the origin of instrumental music? Well, we don't know too much about motivation. You know, I think for me, I think one of the things to, to remember is that people didn't live that long then and there were lots of kids around. So, so drawing children into community and play, as well as into the things that we more traditionally think about sort of with, with music as high art and ritual and, and religion. But I think um, entertaining the kids and lifting the spirits of the kids is, is an important part of this. And maybe that's just my own bias. But I, you know, I really feel that when I'm in the presence of these objects, when I'm visiting them in the museums. What we can say for sure is that the, these are objects that unambiguously crafted to fit human hands and human lips. There's no question whatsoever that these were musical instruments of some kind. We can also say that the kinds of sounds that emerge from those instruments really matched the environment in which they were being played. And in this case, these are very big reverberant caves that give flute music this extraordinary depth and warmth. And to this day, when you listen to recordings of flute music, often a lot of reverberation is added to those recordings. 
or they're recorded in very reverberant spaces, in spaces where if you tried to give a lecture or play some really rapid violin or guitar solos, it, it, it just wouldn't work because the sound would get blurred and messed up by too much reverberation. But these flutes sound perfect in that space. And so this is the first step in a very long coevolution, a relationship between the form of musical instruments and the spaces in which they're played. Coming closer to the present time, a great example is the evolution or the development of 19th century concert halls. These are much bigger spaces than, than people had played music in before, and instruments changed because of it. The flute got, was redesigned, became louder, Pianos became much, much louder. The degree of control with, of, of tone within those instruments became a lot more precise. So the space changed, and then the instruments changed with it. Now, we, many of us listen to music through earbuds and headphones, which is a very intimate kind of space. And so a lot of human singing now is very intimate. It's like whispering in your ear, and you, know, you can go right up to the mic and have a very kind of whispery singing voice, which, you know, up until a few years ago, nobody sang like that. I mean, a hundred years ago, to sing, you had to use your lungs and your diaphragm to fill an entire opera house. Or you had to, in the 70s and 80s, maybe you were singing into a microphone, filling up a big room. And you can hear this in, in the Grammys. Right? So you tune up the best song of the, the song of the year from the Grammys from the 1970s. Every single one of these people is singing into a big room. Now, listen to, and they're also this conspiratorial, whispery kind of music. So the form of music is molding itself to, to fit the new spaces that we create. And, you know, in 10 years, we'll be listening to music in, in some other way. And our voices and our musical instruments will evolve with that. It's a it's a really beautiful thing. To, it's such a wonderful way of listening to music. It's not just hearing the melodies and the timbers, but to think about what context was this music composed for? What does this tell us about how people were relating to one another, relating to the experience of shared sound? Yeah. I mean, I think that's also true today outside of caves, just walking around in everyday life, because... Your book is not only about pleasant sounds, shall we say, of birdsong or catty dids and singing, but also all the sort of non-organic sounds that populate our planet. And you talk about the way that these man-made sounds affect our health and how they interact with the natural world. So let's start with the subway, because this is probably the prototypical city sound for me at least. And there's this, which is underwater, an outboard engine revving up against a cacophony of snapping shrimp. And then this, a Eurasian blackbird competing with some cars. Okay. 
So in all three of these examples, we have old sounds, human music, shrimp, blackbirds, butting up against comparatively new sounds like the subway, boats, cars. So what are the kinds of interactions that you hear between man-made sounds and natural ones and samples like this? Yeah, I think the interaction is, is very, very complex because, of course, humans make all kinds of sounds that range from the extraordinary beautiful music and the sounds of kids playing in a park or just the chatter of, of neighbors and you know things that make us feel at home and that, in fact, are the acoustic signals of home. If you grow up in a city with you know, sounds of some buses and music on the street, those, those sounds become very evocative. They're, they're deeply stored in our, in our memories. Through to the other end of the spectrum, sounds that are just extraordinarily damaging to our physical and mental health. And in the United States, we don't track the effects of sound pollution on humans quite so well as they do in other countries. But in Europe, very well estimated, I mean, down to the uh, almost to the individual, how many people, say 43,000 new cases of uh, cardiovascular disease per year in Europe are attributable to noise pollution. Why is that? Because noise isn't just a, an annoyance. It can come into our body and, and activate us and inflame us from within. And even when we become used to urban noises, for example, people who live near airports might sleep just fine through the takeoffs and the returns of airplanes overhead. But if you hook them up to a physiological sensor, you can show that when an airplane goes over, their blood pressure goes up, they become more physiologically activated, even though they've been listening to that sound for decades and decades. So even when you're pretty well adapted, you, you're still stressed out. The same is true actually for non-human animals like birds in cities. Birds, some birds have really adapted pretty well to cities. The common blackbird, for example, in Europe used to, you used to never see those in cities. At the end of the 19th century, they colonized many European cities and in fact have evolved both culturally and genetically to do well within the city. They adapt their song, they sing louder, they sing at a higher pitch, they often sing at night. Um, so those are some of the ways they adapt. But even those birds are also more stressed. And the stress starts young. If you look at markers of genetic stress in young birds that are exposed to urban noise, even nestlings in the nest are showing some of that. So being amid all this tumult of noise is stressful, not just for, for humans, of course, and harmful to us, but also to other, uh, to other species. It's interesting that some of the first written stories in the world pressed onto clay tablets from Babylonian times contain complaints about urban noise. <laughs> And in fact, you know, the story that many of us probably know best is the story of Noah and the Flood. The original story, one of the original stories for that, in fact, the earliest written version of it, the gods are annoyed because of the noise of humans driving them crazy so they can't sleep. So what do they do? They punish the humans by imposing mortality and disease. And, and these were cities, you know, early Babylonian cities, just a few tens of thousands of people. So noise complaints go right back to the origins of human writing and to the origins of cities. But of course, it takes a very new form in the modern day, and that form is, is structured by urban planning, which has been markedly racist and classist by imposing 
urban noise on predominantly minority communities and lower income neighborhoods and sparing white and higher income neighborhoods. For example, in in New York City, there are now centuries uh, where that practice has been undertaken. And environmental justice organizations are, are rightly and now successfully fighting back against some of that. Yeah. I mean, I think the focus for so long has been on what animals lose with the noise pollution. You know, famously whales being interrupted by military sonar. Mm -hmm. But on the much smaller end, also those shrimp that we heard in that earlier sample with the engine. What changed? Why do you think we started paying attention to how sound affects us? Well, I do think on the topic of the oceans, I do think that oceans are the place where noise pollution is the most severe of a problem for other species. Um, the other place where noise pollution is very severe, I think, is in its effects on humans within within cities. Although we have been aware of urban noise for millennia, I mean, literally since the first cities, people have been talking about this. It's only recently that the the physiological effects have been well understood. The effects on learning for young children, kids who are in noisy classrooms right next to a subway or an elevated train track are more distracted and learn less quickly than kids who are in quieter classrooms. So there are all sorts of negative effects. And so we've got more information but also the environmental movement in the United States, I think, is finally waking up to the idea that cities matter. For decades and decades, the, the main thrust of the environmental movement has been about wilderness and has been founded on the idea that essentially humans are a bad influence in the world and that cities are like, they're kind of write-off zones. And so if you look up noise pollution, for example, in the Sierra Club magazine over the last few decades, almost all of the discussions of sound and noise are about protecting wilderness areas, which is great. I'm all for keeping noise out of wilderness areas on this planet. I'm not disputing that for a moment. It's a really important issue. However, what we need as a complement to that is care for our own species. What would it be to extend the same regard for our own species, particularly for people within our species who perhaps don't have as much political clout and economic clout, and therefore it's harder to get on the political agenda. And so this is the long story of environmental justice in the United States. And sound pollution is just one part of a much, much bigger story that now in the level of city planning in many cities now, environmental justice is firmly on the agenda. The problem is the federal government in the middle part of the 20th century was providing a 90% cost share to put interstate highways and bypasses through neighborhoods that were dismissed as so-called slums or so-called ghettos. It was official government policy. You mix that with redlining, which deprived black, brown, other minority communities of access to credit. To, to mortgages, and you've got a recipe for for very severe environmental racism that will can't be fixed by just a few policy tweaks. Now, we need systematic change about how we think about city planning that protects all people from the negative effects of noise, which is highly correlated with particulate pollution. For example, if you live near a highway, not only do you not sleep well at night, you're breathing a lot of of particulate pollution because of all the trucks and and things going 
going past. So noise pollution is part of a, a big intersecting complex of severe problems around environmental racism, and the solution is much greater emphasis on environmental justice. I mean, are you hopeful for the way that things are trending? Because you're right, policy tweaks aren't going to work. It has to be a big a big change. Do you think people are waking up to everything that we lose when we lose, you know, connection to sound and even connection to silence? I'd say the first thing, my preamble to that is to say that it's really not up to us to decide whether we have hope or not. It's up to us to figure out what is broken and, and to try to fix it. And then hope is like, well, do we expect to win that <laughs> struggle or not? Let the next generation decide whether we had grounds to be hopeful. Let them applaud us for our efforts and our work rather than you know, judging us on whether we are hopeful or not. Um, so that's the first thing I think that the task is about, is about uh, getting, getting to work. What sound, listening to, to the sounds of the world does for me is actually give me the energy to get involved with that work, which is a kind of hope. So, for example, hearing a bird singing on a city street. Yeah, that bird is, is facing some challenges and that city may have major problems with environmental injustice and, and other issues. And yet life bursts forth in exaltation in song we hear that in the birds we hear it go to the edge of town and listen to the spring peepers waking up and singing their little froggy hearts out in the spring you hear it in people sharing their music on the street and in the in the hubbub of voices in in a city park all those things tell us life wants to go on given half a chance life will thrive and will do well set against that Listening also teaches us that there's much that is broken in the world. Those two things, the beauty and the brokenness of the world, exist together, paradoxically together. And of course, in some places, one seems much and is much more prominent than another. The, the point is that both are present and that one of our tasks as humans is to lean on the side of, of beauty and passing on beauty rather than brokenness. And listening both literally listening to the varied sounds of the world, I think is a wonderful way to, to tap into those wells of joy and creativity and connection to do the work of healing some of that brokenness. So when I hear bird songs or when I hear children shouting on the street, those are hopeful signs to me. We have links in the show notes to David George Haskell's new book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction, as well as a playlist of recordings he made, some of which you heard in the show. There are a lot of grim tidings in the soundscape about the insect apocalypse and urban noise pollution, but to counteract that, I'm including probably my favorite website in the whole internet, Radio with five O's, and yes, you have to pronounce it that way, a musical time machine where you can explore songs by country and decade. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>